Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to uh, part two of my conversation with James and Nathan. Uh, we're continuing today talking about uh, their book, God versus Government. Uh, welcome back, men, uh, to the to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, you, great to be you, here. Great to be here. Great to have you. Do you guys want to catch us up on anything that might have happened, you know, in the last week or anything like that uh, that you didn't share before? We're just uh, continuing to praise the Lord for His goodness here at Grace Community Church and uh, also at the Master's Seminary. And well, guys, um, you know, some would say you guys pursue this kind of visibility that we're talking about um, for yourselves. So some might want to paint you, James, you know, as a, as a martyr. Did you guys pursue this type of visibility or did the issue come to you? Yeah, I think if you... I mean, I don't want to put words in Nathan's mouth, but I think if you look at Grace Community Church, the visibility that church has, the size of that church, kind of the lights already shining upon it. So, you know, as they decided to stay open, you know, that that's going to draw a certain amount of attention. In our case, we were already open, just just serving the Lord and and, and meeting for corporate worship. And uh, the governing authorities came to us. I mean, it began with some health complaints and uh, we tried to navigate those. But then over time, the the focus that was given to our church through the media, through law enforcement began to increase. And so we, we never sought this out. We would have been happy to continue to meet and worship and do the work of the ministry uh, all on our own without any of this visibility, but it came to us and, and, and we just took the stand that we did. And, and I think God's providence is in that he, he obviously chose to use our church in that particular way. And, and I can't answer why the Lord did that, but, um, but obviously he wanted to, to shine the light on us and, and the stand that we took. And so, no, uh, this this came to us. This was a fight that came to us. We did not seek this out. We were not looking for it. It's an uncomfortable thing to go through personally, corporately as a church. And so no one would ever seek this out for some kind of personal gain. This was a, a battle that came to us. And, and all we did, just as Nathan described in the, the previous podcast is, is, is remain faithful and obedient to Christ. Really good. Uh, Nathan, do you have anything to add there, brother? Well, I think at the heart of it is we're seeking to be faithful as James just said. So this isn't about trying to be famous. It's about trying to honor the Lord. And we saw with Grace Life Edmonton, that kind of mindset that we want to honor Christ no matter what. And in this case, the Lord allowed a spotlight to be placed on James and his church. And I think the Lord allowed that because it brought visibility to a faithful congregation so that Christ would be glorified in that visibility. And it served as a testimony, which is a word that means witness, a witness to the power of the gospel. 
and of the believer's commitment to honor Christ no matter the cost. That's really, really good, guys. Really good. Uh, what, what are the five biblical principles regarding the believer's response to and the relationship with the government? Yeah, so in the first part of the book, God versus Government, we spend time talking about the stories of what happened at Grace Community Church and also at Grace Life Edmonton. And then in the second half of the book, which is called Our Stand, we really get into the biblical principles and convictions, the biblical truth that undergirded the reason for why we took the stand that we took. And in that section, it starts by looking at five different biblical principles in terms of the believer's relationship to government. Those five, the first one would be what we called supreme allegiance. And what we mean by that is that the believer's supreme allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, that whether at home or absent, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to Christ. So our supreme allegiance is to the Lord. And that's something that as Christians, I mean, that's what it means to be Christian. It means that we are followers of Christ and he is our supreme authority. Our highest loyalty belongs to him. Then the second principle is what we called sovereign appointment, which is simply the biblical teaching that all government, governmental authority finds its origin in God himself. God is the one who ordains authority. He is the one who allows nations to rise up and then who allows them to fall. No one is in a position of authority unless God has sovereignly allowed that person to be there. So that's sovereign appointment. Then thirdly, secular animosity. This is the principle that as believers, we live in a world that's going to be hostile to us because the darkness hates the light. John 15, Jesus said that his followers should expect to be persecuted and to be hated by the world. So the fact that we would experience animosity and antagonism from the world around us, including those in governmental authority, should not surprise us. Jesus promised that that is the reality we would experience. Paul told Timothy, those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And then the fourth principle was what we called a submissive attitude. And that is that we always want to be characterized by an attitude of respectfulness for those whom God has sovereignly ordained in positions of secular and civil authority. And Romans 13 is a key passage in that, that we are to be submissive. And that starts with our attitude. So even when we can't comply, we seek to comply, we seek to disobey. Even when we can't comply, we seek to disobey in a way that still exhibits a kind of meekness and respect that Christ himself exhibited when he was arrested by the uh, religious authorities. And then the fifth and final principle is the spheres of authority principle. We talked about that in the last podcast, but it is the idea that there is a distinction between the secular and the sacred. When Jesus in Matthew 22, 23 said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar and to God that which is God's, he made a distinction between the two. And in the New Testament, we see those spheres of authority, the government, the family, and the church. And there are limits on the jurisdiction that each of those authorities possess. 
And when one authority overreaches the biblical boundaries, it is right for those in the other spheres of authority to resist, but to resist in a way, again, that still exhibits that attitude of respectfulness and reverence. So those are the five biblical principles. And again, it's just about building out a structure of what does the Bible teach in terms of principles for how believers are to relate to governing authority. Uh, James, why does an attitude of respect and submission undergird the five biblical principles you mentioned in the book? I think it, it's critical because it, it reflects Christ and his likeness. When you look at the way the Lord responded to the governing authorities in his arrest uh, trial, which was a mock trial, um, and the way that he was beaten and responded to that, the way he responded to Pilate, uh, you just see one who was committed and resolved to obey the father and, and entrusted himself to him who judges righteously in the face of injustice. And so to, to be submissive to the consequences for civil disobedience in those times when you are being obedient to God is, is to walk in a manner consistent with Christ and his likeness. I think you see it in the apostle Paul. I think you see it in the, the, the apostles as well, the, the 12. And so um, I just think it, 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 it bears the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, all the fruit of the spirit are evidenced in that. And so when you have someone who is resisting the governing authorities, but they're doing so in a manner that's inconsistent with the, the character of Christ, it brings into question the, the resistance itself. It's no longer something that bears testimony to love for God and, and a, a faithful obedience to him, it's now something more political and, and, and more natural, more worldly. And so I think it's critical that, that as we take the stands that we do, even when consequences come, that we receive those consequences submissively. Mm. Nathan, do you have anything to add to that, brother? Well, that was very well said. I would just add that I think it's very intentional in Paul's letter to the Romans that Romans chapter 12, what Paul says at the end there about the really expression of a love that is without hypocrisy, that love towards unbelievers means that you do not return insult for insult. You, you do not try to pay back evil. You do not seek your own revenge. These kinds of principles are laid out clearly at the end of Romans 12. And then Paul goes right from there into be subject to the governing authorities. So the actions that come out of an attitude of submission are actions in which we do not respond in kind just because the secular or civil government is treating us in a hostile or antagonistic way. Instead, we're characterized by the meekness, the gentleness, and the love of Christ, even when we're persecuted. Mm, really good. Really good. Uh, Nathan, how have you seen the Holy Spirit's hand at work amidst the legal battles and the conversations that occurred, you know, after um, the refusal to follow the stay at home um, mandates and those types of things? Well, it's been an amazing testimony of God's grace to our church. And this is something that we detail in uh, the first part of the book, talking about the legal battle that Grace Community Church was involved in. It was July of 2020 that our elders issued a statement saying, hey, we must obey God rather than men. And in California, they had put in place uh, at that point, uh, an order uh, that was not allowing our church to gather. 
and the order uh, had no termination date on it. It was just this indefinite kind of, we're not going to allow uh, your church to meet, at least not in the way that we had normally been meeting. And our elders said, no, we, we cannot comply with that because Hebrews 10, 24 commands us to not neglect the assembling of ourselves together. Do not forsake the assembly. And that is a command without any exclusion or exception. The pattern of what makes a church a church is that it gathers. And when we were not allowed to gather, at least not in the way that was conducive to weekly worship, our elders said, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, California actually also passed a ban on singing which is another clear New Testament command. We are commanded in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 to praise the Lord in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, you know, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Uh, these are biblical commands. So for us, it was not something that was unclear or ambiguous. The government saying you cannot meet, the New Testament says we must meet. The government saying you cannot sing, the New Testament says you must sing. And so... We weren't being pugnacious about it. We weren't protesting or rioting, but we were going to do what the New Testament commands us to do. The result of that was that uh, we got taken to court. And honestly, from a human perspective, against all odds, the Lord prevailed on our behalf and we won the court battle. And it was just a testimony again to God's power and to the fact that those who trust in him will not be disappointed or put to shame. So um, for our church, it was a lesson in faith and a lesson in God's faithfulness. And the result of it is just that our people, we still, when we think about it, it gives us cause for great rejoicing that the Lord has allowed our church to continue meeting without interruption and for us to enjoy the fellowship of the saints together on a weekly basis. So much more that I could say about that, but I, I should probably end there. That's, that's a really good answer, brother. Uh, what are well, the, let what me are, just say this, oh, I, ahead, you know, Nathan, from my recollection, everything wrapped up in a really providential way in terms of the timing of it. And I don't even know if it makes sense to get into that, but as I understand it, um, everything resolved itself in time to be able to tell the complete story uh, in God versus government. And even God's providence in that is significant. Yeah, James, you're right. So the sort of the final, the final agreement from Los Angeles County to drop the case, we got word of that just days before the manuscript was due for the book project. And it was just such a neat sort of ending to everything to be able to include that in the manuscript so that that would be documented the timing of it, though, it was just days before the, the manuscript was due. And again, we were just praising the Lord. It, it felt in some way like something out of the book of Acts, where you're, you're praying for Peter to be released, and then there's a knock on the door, and you almost don't believe it that Peter's standing there. Um, we're praying that the secular judge, the non-Christian court system, the whole deal that this is going to work out so that we can continue to meet as, again, the New Testament commands us to meet. And God answered that prayer in a way that was an extraordinary act of providence and all of the glory goes to him. Mm, amen. Especially when you consider how many delays there were 
in the process of that being resolved. Right. So yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah. It was a bit of a circus and we get into all of that in the book, but it was only a circus from the human perspective and the roller coaster of emotions and all of those things from God's perspective, you look back on it. And obviously we see the hand of Providence most clearly when we look back but looking back on it, the hand of providence is so clearly evident. It's such a testimony to the power and the wonder of the work of God. And we all got to be front row spectators for it. And it was amazing. Mm-hmm. So you, you were just talking about, you know, this this incredible story. Um, and, and somebody might wonder, does does the government have the authority to prevent the church from gathering? So I think that the government might think that it has that authority, but biblically it does not have that authority. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 is a command in scripture that comes with no exceptions or exclusions. We are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And that was written in a context in which people were being persecuted and they were afraid to gather because of the potential persecution that might result. And the author of Hebrews made it clear, even in the face of potential persecution, you do not forsake the assembly. I mean, even the word church, ecclesia or ecclesia, it means assembly. It's the assembly of those who are called out. If you don't assemble, you're not a church. So um, for our elders, it was that biblical command that drove the conviction to take the stand that we took. The commands in Romans chapter 13, in 1 Peter chapter 2, in uh, Titus chapter 3, these commands to be subject to the government, those are commands that do come with one big exception. And that exception is... If the government calls you or commands you to do something that would prevent you from being obedient to God, either to do something wrong or to stop doing something right, when the government interferes with obedience to Christ, Acts 5.29, you must obey God rather than man. So Hebrews 13 has an exception. It has an exclusion. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 does not. Really good. James, do you want to add anything? Well, I think, too, when you think about the separation of church and state, my understanding anyway, is that the separation between church and state was to keep the state out of the church, not to keep the church out of the state. So if the state can tell the church when and where and how it can gather, you've just obliterated the separation between church and state. And uh, and again, the whole idea that the government can can impose anything with respect to its worship on the church is a totalitarian view of government. It's saying the government is the the authority above all other earthly authorities. And that's not the way God designed uh, human existence to, to unfold. And so um, so I just yeah resonate with everything Nathan just said. And I think uh, people need to realize that the separation between church and state is to keep the, ch- uh, the state out of the church. And so that's critical to understand that. Yeah, that's really good. Well, I think, guys, there's a lot of confusion today, and you bring this up on page 145 when you say when rulers act wickedly, believers are right to condemn that behavior. Christians are not being insubordinate when they call their leaders to live according to God's law. So why do you think there's such a great deal of confusion about believers being right to condemn wicked rulers? Does that make sense? Well, yeah, it does, Dave. That's a good question. As we talk about in the book, when we look through both the Old and New Testaments, we see example after example of godly men, prophets, 
apostles, leaders, calling out the wickedness, uh, the wicked examples of those in civil authority when those in civil authority are acting in blatant disobedience to the law of God. And so while we seek to maintain an attitude of respectfulness for the position of authority, because that's ordained by God, it is not wrong for believers to call sin, sin. It is not wrong for believers to bring the truth of the word of God to bear on those who are in authority. In fact, it is right for us to do that. And so really all that we are suggesting is that Christians take the standard of God's word, which ought to be the standard through which they view all of reality, and that they apply that standard to those who are in positions of civil authority. And when those in positions of civil authority act in ways that are contrary to the standard of God, Christians have the right and even the duty as those who are witnesses to Christ to confront that sin and that wrongdoing for the sake of being a witness to the gospel. Yeah, that was well said. And I, I think, you know, part of the piece that we have to, to keep in mind, and this is basic to the Christian life, is that as Christians, we're salt. We're salt and light in this world. And so if we're not speaking to the unrighteousness that's in the world, who will? And, and how can we truly be a preserving influence on society and culture if we are, are not engaging the culture appropriately, especially in those avenues that God has given us to do that. And so I think it's critical that the church realize that it has a prophetic role to the culture. And that's not the primary focus of the church by no means. Our, our goal is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that the church has to be a political activist necessarily, but to, to, to speak out and call out what's wrong in society and even to call out unfaithful rulers the way John the Baptist did with Herod. I think that that is completely biblical, appropriate, and needed. And I think Nathan said that well. That's really good, guys. Well, what deficiencies have been exposed in the broader evangelical church during the last few years, and what can be done about these deficiencies? I think we've seen just a very low view of ecclesiology. I think the theology of the church is incredibly low and the corporate gathering, corporate worship, all of that has been put to the test. And what we're seeing is that gathering to worship the Lord as his body is, is a box to be checked off. It's a, it's a spectator sport. It's like going to the movies or to a hockey game and you show up and you take in what takes place and you leave and that's the end of it. And so when it comes to the church coming together corporately to worship, that you can do whatever you want to the corporate gathering. There, there, the, you can rewrite the rule book. There, there isn't a rule book. There isn't a playbook. You can, you can basically do whatever you want to the corporate gathering. And so as long as we're permitted to preach the gospel, well, then, then everything's fine. And so the government can meddle in every issue of singing and, and, and masking and distancing and capacity limits and everything else. And that's fine. So long as we can preach the gospel. And that's just a very low view of, of the church. It's a very low view of ecclesiology. And so I think what you, what you're finding out is that a lot of churches aren't really coming together on Sundays, the way they're called to that, that the, the ministry to the saints is something less than what it ought to be. It's a, it's a, a sheer going through the motions 
it's a, a sheer showing up. And by noon, the church is empty and people are getting on with the rest of their day. Um, the, the Lord's day is a day when the body of Christ is to come together and, and experience the means of grace to be built up. And, and then as the means of grace are administered through corporate prayer and, and singing and the preaching of God's word, the body is then to minister to itself. One anothering is to take place. And, and all of that takes time and it requires being together and, and it's intentional. And, and so I think there's, there's something incredibly deficient about the way uh, many churches approach gathering for, the, for, for corporate worship on the Lord's day. And I think that's been, that's been on full display in this season. Hmm. That's really well said. Do you have anything to add, brother? Yeah, I mean, I would resonate with everything that James just said. I think that the evangelical church in North America does suffer from a low ecclesiology. I think some of that stems from a low view of scripture, which stems from a low view of the authority of Christ. You know, if we go back to the Reformation, in the Reformation, it was the headship or the lordship of Jesus Christ as the head of the church that really catapulted the entire the entirety of that 16th century reform movement because if Christ is the head of the church then his word is the authority for the church and the church must be obedient to what is laid out in the scriptures both for the gospel that it preaches and for the ministry that it exercises. So that low ecclesiology stems from a low view of scripture, which stems from a low view of the Lordship of Christ. And it was in recapturing the authority of Christ as the head of the church that we had a reformation in the 16th century. And it will only be by recapturing the headship of Christ as the Lord of the church that we will have revival reformation in this century. And certainly that's my prayer for the evangelical church in North America. But I think the reason it's so anemic is because it's lost sight of the true authority. Because the moment that you abdicate all of that and say, well, the government can tell us what to do, that's simply, uh, that exposes the reality that you've lost sight of who the true head of the church is, the Lord Jesus Christ. I can just keep listening to you talk about that, brother. It's really well said. Thank you. Uh, what is what is gospel courage and what does it look like today? Yeah, so when we when we think about gospel courage, in the book I tied it to the terms reformed evangelical, or actually I tied it to the terms evangelical Protestant, um, because the term evangelical comes from the Reformation and the term Protestant comes from the Reformation in terms of their application to Bible-believing Christians. The term evangelical really comes from the Greek word euangelion, which is a New Testament term meaning gospel. But Martin Luther took that term, he Germanized it, evangelical, and he applied it to the churches of the 16th century Reformation. They were the gospel churches. And then Protestant was a term that in its initial context, actually applied to uh, Lutheran leaders in the Holy Roman Empire telling Emperor Charles V and those who met at um, a diet, which is an imperial council in Spire, they told them, look, we're protesting against your attempts to shut down the Protestant movement or the Reformation itself. 
So the term evangelical means we're all about the gospel. The term Protestant means that we're not going to let secular government tell us how we can worship or what we must believe. So the idea of gospel comes from evangelical. The idea of courage comes from Protestant. I tied it to those two words because I wanted Christians today to recognize that if you think of yourself as an evangelical Protestant, what you are saying is, I believe the gospel and I'm willing to be in or to be out of compliance with secular government in order to stand up for and preach and teach and represent and reflect that true gospel. So gospel courage is about calling evangelical Protestants back to what it means to be evangelical and to be Protestant. It means to take a bold stand for Christ, no matter the cost. Very well said, brother. So, Nathan, what words of wisdom do you have for American Christians? And James, what advice do you have for Canadian Christians and any any takeaways that you want us to to have uh, leave with our listeners? Yeah, I think the the last word, the final word that I would want to communicate to those who claim the name of Christ and are living in the United States is for them to recognize that all of the comforts and freedoms that we've enjoyed in the past, that we're not guaranteed those things for the future. But no matter what the secular government does, whether that's at a local level, a state level, or a federal level, no matter what persecution comes, no matter what hostility or antagonism or antipathy, our responsibility does not change. And so we don't have to worry ourselves with all of that. The thing we have to be focused on is faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithfulness is what matters. When I think of the parable that Jesus tells about the servants who come and appear before the king, what is it that the king says to the faithful servants? He says, well done, my good and faithful slave enter into the joy of your master faithfulness is heaven's standard of success and it is faithfulness that we must pursue faithfulness to christ no matter the cost and if we focus on faithfulness then we know that we will be pleasing to him and one day when we stand before him we look forward to hearing him say to us well done and that does not depend on how the government responds to us. That's about honoring Christ, no matter how the government might react. Well said, brother. James? Yeah, I resonate with that. And I think the answer is the same. Whether you're American, Canadian, from the UK, the answer is the same. It is about uh, faithfulness. And the way to cultivate that in the short term is in your personal life. You need to be constantly nourished upon the word of truth. You need to be dealing with the sin in your life on a personal level, confessing that sin, turning from that sin, putting that off, putting on righteousness in its place. And so a lot of folks would come to my wife and I and ask us, well, what do we do to prepare ourselves to stand like you guys did? And, and there really isn't like a uh, a novel recipe for that. It's just, it's just walking with the Lord faithfully daily and, 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 and cultivating obedience in your life um, in the little things that will then help you and, and assist you for the, the, the heavier moments that come along the way, recognizing that it's all by God's grace and recognizing that he gives you the grace you need for each moment and for each stand. 
I mean, we look back at the difficulty of the season that we've gone through. It's only by God's grace that we could even take that stand. And, and so he furnishes you with everything you need to do that. But as far as, you know, where your focus needs to be, it's got to be on tending to the prosperity of your own soul so that as, as things heat up, you're a person who's walking by the spirit, who's continually being filled with the spirit, who has the word of Christ dwelling in them richly. And, and that will assist you to navigate uh, the difficult times that are yet ahead. And, and obviously that means being plugged into a solid church where the word of God is being preached. Uh, it means uh, being in a church that's committed to coming together for corporate worship. All of that is critical to ensuring that your soul is being tended to appropriately. Mm. Well said brothers. Well, Nathan and James, I want to thank you for your time today and for coming on equipping you in grace. Uh, guys, uh, the book is God versus Government, Taking a Biblical Stand When Christ and Compliance Collide. I highly recommend this book. Um, it will help you to learn to navigate these issues and many more. So thank you, man, for your work and for your bold stand for the Lord Jesus. Great. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter, at Servants of Grace, on Instagram, at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.